welcome to the Reminger Report podcast on emerging technologies. Reminger Co. LPA is a full-service law firm with over 150 lawyers spread across 14 offices and serving states throughout the Midwest. My name is Zach Pyers, and I'm a partner in Reminger's Columbus, Ohio office. And I'm Kenton Steele, an associate in Reminger's Columbus office. This podcast on emerging technologies will examine how changes in technology and business models affect our daily lives and how the law is adapting to respond to these changes. Welcome back to the podcast series where we are exploring the legal issues surrounding the gig economy and tort litigation. We're going to step into the second part of the series where we start to explore some of the legal issues that are present in the gig economy. Kind of as a reminder, the first episode that we did or the first part of the series, we really looked at defining the gig economy, the size, and kind of the driving forces behind the rise and growth of the gig economy. Now, as we step into the second part series, um, Kenton, if you would, can you help to kind of explain what impact does the rise of the gig economy have on the legal world? Certainly. Um, It's a very interesting question. As we talked about on our last episode, um, the gig economy really represents a departure from how we've traditionally viewed work arrangements, right? They're in the past, it was much more um, standard to see typical employee-employer relationships that were long-term, whereas now, due to new technologies, changes in the way people approach their daily lives, an increased demand for, for on-demand services, there's this big boom and increase in Uh, new employment relationships that we refer to as being part of the gig economy. So it's, it's certainly interesting in the legal field. It's a profession. It is a, a, a part of society that is driven by precedent, by what has occurred in the past. So when radically new things like the gig economy really burst onto the scene and become more and more a part of everyday life, the law is in the position of responding to that without the typical tools of being able to look at prior cases, um, things that have happened in the past to dictate how disputes should be decided. And where we see issues coming up um, are really in two distinct areas. One is with respect to employment law questions, right? There is an entire body of law that's set up to provide certain protections to workers, depending on what their classifications are. If you're a traditional employee, there is you know unemployment benefits, workers' compensation, other employment law protections. There are also some protections that are afforded to independent contractors, uh, although it's less than what is typically associated with longer-term employment relationships. But what the gig economy does is kind of throws a wrench into that analysis and and courts have struggled to find how to place these new relationships in the old employee independent contractor framework. Now, we also see issues related to the gig economy coming up with respect to tort liability, right? If a if a worker who is performing an act on behalf of a gig economy company or platform um, causes an injury to someone in the course of carrying out that task they're being paid to do, does liability or responsibility for that injury extend up to the company that the person was working for? 
This is sort of a new question. As I mentioned, we have precedent and framework that tells us how that liability can be passed to the company if it's a traditional employment relationship or if it's a traditional independent contractor. But those same guidelines and framework framework that's used becomes less useful when we're talking about the gig economy. And courts have started to take notice of this. Um, Specifically, there is a, a very recent case out of an appellate court in Michigan where the court stated, it is evident that the nature of some employment relationships has changed. The gig economy has blurred the lines between employers, contractors, employees, and labor brokers. Additionally, in an appellate decision out of the Superior Court of New Jersey, the court stated that the nature of work is changing. The advent of the so-called gig economy and the increasing use of independent contractors threaten to leave growing numbers of workers unprotected by the remedial statutes designed to shield them from the vagaries of the workplace. These new relationships also threaten to shield businesses from liability for the harm those workers cause while laboring on their behalf. And what those two quotes from those two courts tell us is that the the legal world judges um, in particular are beginning to see that they don't have all the tools that they would like to have um, to reach the right outcomes in cases where issues are created involving gig economy workers. Now, I think that's a great recap as it relates to, you know, overall legal issues and the gig economy and some of the struggles. Now, what are some of the issues or the questions of tort liability, especially tort liability, involving gig economy workers, and, and, and why are those unique? That's a, that's a great question. You know, what is it about the gig economy that makes it so that it doesn't fit into the typical and traditional frameworks that we have? And one of the biggest things is really the flexible nature of the work relationships. So in the gig economy, um, the work relationship between the worker and the platform or the employer can shift very rapidly, where a person can go from you know, acting on behalf of one platform in one minute, and then 10 minutes later, they're no longer um, you know, working for that company, and they're now working for a different company. Um, in a prior episode, we had talked about the different phases that are used to describe a ride-sharing transaction, right? So phase zero, a person has a ride-sharing app like Uber or Lyft installed on their phone, but they're not actually looking for a ride. Phase one starts when the driver opens the app and is waiting for a notification that someone's looking for a ride. Phase two starts when the driver is on their way to pick up a passenger And phase three starts when the passenger gets into the vehicle and they're on their way to their destination. So we have that sort of um, framework to look at, you know, what is the relationship and involvement between a gig economy, in this instance, a ride-sharing driver in the company. And that helps us parse out, you know, how closely tied is the company to the worker. But there are limits on the usefulness of that framework And it's in part caused by, um, again, that flexible nature. So with a lot of gig economy workers, 
that use multiple platforms simultaneously. Um, we've all likely seen an Uber car that has, you know, the light lighted placard for Uber in the front window and right next to it will be the lighted placard for a different company for Lyft uh, or a DoorDash sticker on the back of a, a vehicle that's being used to give Uber rides. So because workers can be involved with multiple companies, it can really present some interesting and frustrating questions. So just as an example, let's think of a driver who is driving for DoorDash. They see a request, you know, they're driving for DoorDash. They have the delivery in their vehicle. And as they're headed to their destination, they see a request for an Uber ride that won't take them out of the path of their DoorDash destination. So if the driver accepts that Uber fare, the driver would be in period three or phase three with respect to DoorDash, phase two with Uber, and phase one with any other you know, gig economy or ride-sharing apps that might be running in the background. If that driver is involved in an accident or a crash at that point in time, there's obviously a lot to sort out in terms of which companies should be involved or, or how liability will pass to any of the different companies that may be involved um, with that driver. And the other you know, component of the gig economy and the platforms that are involved that create questions um, for how tort liability should be allocated. As we've talked about in the past, you know, control, whether or not the hiring party is able to exercise control over the worker is sort of the, the key factor that we're really looking at. Well, through a lot of the technological developments that we see, companies are able to exercise oversight more remotely over workers. So in the past, if a person was, you know, being directly supervised, and they were an employee, that was easy to pick out, right? There's a supervisor who is with you telling you what to do and where to go. Well, today, because of the tracking that's possible through smartphones and um, the various instant messaging options that exist, an Uber driver might not ever be directly supervised by anyone from the company or a Lyft driver might not have anyone looking over their shoulder, but the company may be able to track where they go, how long it takes them to pick people up or drop them off at their destination, if they're driving over the speed limit, if a passenger is leaving negative reviews for a driver, that could impact whether or not the platform will continue to use that worker in the future. And through all of these more indirect and remote means, the company is able to exercise some degree of control over the worker. This is part of what has made analyzing liability and vicarious liability in the gig economy setting somewhat complicated in what makes it a novel and unique question. Now, as we talk about that novel and uniqueness, can you give us some examples when courts have had to examine gig economy companies in the tort situation and kind of examine that novel or uniqueness? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there aren't as many cases as you would, would maybe think there would be um, involving, 
you know, gig economy companies. And part of that is because those cases tend to settle uh, or there are arbitration agreements involved that keep cases out of court. But there are, of course, some disputes that actually reach a, a, a lawsuit being filed and a decision being made by a court. So in one example, in a case involving Lyft that uh, comes out of California, the vehicle uh, involved, the driver was using a vehicle that was provided through a Lyft program. So the company actually provided the vehicle that the driver was using. But when the crash occurred, the crash at issue in the case occurred, the driver didn't actually have the Lyft app open. Um, they were just using the Lyft vehicle for what was described as their own personal, you know, purely personal activities. Ultimately, even though the tie between the company and the worker was relatively strong, um, you know, the worker was driving a Lyft vehicle at the time, the court ultimately granted a motion for summary judgment um, dismissing Lyft from the case because liability did not extend to a worker's purely personal activities. So, you know, broadening that out, that would basically cover periods in time where the driver is not directly um, doing something to benefit one of the, the gig economy companies, if it's Uber or Lyft, if they're not in period two or period three, that courts may interpret that as, you know, the limits of when vicarious liability will be extended to a company like that. Now, are there any examples that you have where courts have analyzed this differently? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's not um, a one-sided analysis. It's not as though uh, gig economy companies are never found liable when a tort occurs. So in one example, we've got a case out of Illinois um, that, again, is fairly recent. And in, in this case, an Uber driver picked up two passengers late at night and was giving them a ride home. And in the course of the ride, the Uber driver kicked the passengers out of the vehicle and terminated the ride. At the time that the, the driver kicked the passengers out, it was about 2 a.m. in a, um, you know, not a great part of the city they were in. And as the two people were walking home, they weren't able to get another Uber ride. Um, so the two passengers started to walk home. And in the course of doing that, they were hit by a vehicle. They filed a lawsuit against Uber and against the driver. And ultimately, uh, the, the trial court granted Uber's motion to dismiss and let them out of the lawsuit. But on appeal, the appellate court reversed that decision and found that Uber could be liable for you know those two passengers being hit because the company could reasonably foresee the danger that was created by leaving passengers stranded in a bad neighborhood late at night. And while there may not have been any individual person at Uber who was specifically aware of what had transpired, the company was certainly, that information was available to them because, again, of all of the, the tracking and um, the information that's available through the platform and the app that both the driver and the passengers would have used that are constantly feeding data 
back to Uber. And, and on the basis of that information that was available to Uber, the court found that there was a potential for liability for the driver kicking those passengers out of the vehicle. Now, are there other scenarios that you're, you're aware of where courts have examined gig economy companies and, and looked at kind of different scenarios? Absolutely. As we talked about in the last episode, the gig economy can take a lot of different forms. It's not just ride sharing. It's not just meal delivery. It can also be rentals of, of personal property like cars or rentals of real property. And that can also lead to accidents and injuries. Um, so if we look at Airbnb, for instance, we have a case out of Louisiana where the renter of an Airbnb property uh, was injured when a staircase collapsed. That injured person filed a claim against Airbnb on the basis of a premises liability theory, basically that that Airbnb had given them access to a property and that the property was not safe. But ultimately, that case was dismissed on the courts finding that Airbnb, even though they had you know, made this arrangement between the property owner and the renter, Airbnb did not have any actual control over that property and so had no ability to identify a dangerous condition like the staircase that was about to collapse or to make any repairs. So even though Airbnb was involved in that transaction, liability did not extend to the company for a premises liability claim. But that case sort of presents an interesting example of the different kinds of issues that we can see when we're talking about liability for gig economy companies. That will conclude the second part of our series focusing on gig economy and the legal issues surrounding them. Join us back next time when we continue our examination on the impacts of the gig economy.